Good morning. Christ is risen. Well, unlike the men's retreat, I cannot promise that this won't be lame. And I cannot promise that you'll get your money back at the end. I can promise it won't last 18 hours or anything like that. And there won't be any bears today. I worried a little bit about the bear wrestling reference. I was thinking earlier this week, these are the thoughts I think, that preaching could be hyphenated so that it reads pre-aching. Right? And this often happens to me when I hear sermons, my own or others. Just not too long ago, I heard a sermon from the text that I'm going to be reading with you today about peace. And just a few minutes into the sermon, I begin to ache. Because there was a lot of talk about peace, and and the, the heart of the sermon was that God wants us to have peace in the midst of our trouble. But I realized that I didn't know what he meant. And then I realized that after almost 38 years of living in the church and innumerable church services and innumerable sermons, I really don't know what any of us mean when we talk about the peace of God. And I, I started to jot down some questions. I started by writing questions like this. What is this peace really? Surely we don't mean peace is just the cessation of trouble outside of us. I think sometimes, at least some of us, talk about wanting God's peace and what we really mean is we want our life to go well. Like we want to get the parking place nearest the door, we want to win the lottery, we want our kids to stop asking us for rent money. Like we, we want our life to go well, right? And so the peace of God becomes kind of a, a, a slogan that really means my life goes well. But I think most of the time we mean something a little more subtle than that. We mean we want to feel settled even if our life isn't going well. That we don't want to be troubled within, even while we're living in trouble without. And I think most, the overwhelming majority of words I've heard about peace within the church means something like that. That no matter what you're facing, no matter what trouble has beset you, you can have the peace of God, by which we mean you can feel good, even though everything is going badly. But the more I reflected on it, the more I thought, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. Because I don't see that, first of all, in my life. And even more importantly, I don't see that in the life of the saints. And I don't see that in the life of the people in Scripture. And I don't think that that's what Scripture is even promising. Think, for instance, of people like Moses and Elijah and the prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. They not only had trouble without, their lives are marked by inward troubledness too. The Psalms are filled with inward troubledness as much as outward troubledness. We see this, of course, in the life of St. Paul and right through the lives of the saints. And we know it in our own lives that the, the truth of the matter is that whatever it is that God gives us in giving us peace, it doesn't mean that we're going to have inner peace, inner tranquility, inner calm, inner joy in spite of what's happening around us. It isn't, at least it isn't reducible to that. And then I started to ask another set of questions that went something like this. How do we get this peace? Whatever it is, put that aside for a moment. Whatever it is, how do we get it? Does it come all at once or does it come a bit at a time? Do we know when we've got it? Is it possible to have it and not know that you have it? Can we do anything to get it? 
Can we do anything to lose it? Will we know when we've lost it if we lose it? And then I think most pressingly, what does it mean if we don't have it? If we're trying to live at the heart of God's will, and yet right there, as, as close as we can be to what we know to be the Father's will, we yet are troubled within as well as without, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm not doing something I should be doing? Does it mean I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing? Does it mean you're not doing for me something you should be doing for me? You're doing something against me you shouldn't be doing against me? And why don't I have peace? And surely there are at least a handful of us in here today who we're asking that question in one form or another. Not only why is there trouble in my life, but why is there trouble in my heart in the midst of the trouble in my life? Why do I not have settledness? And that led me to a third set of questions. And that is, should we even want peace? Should we? Because think about how broken the world is. And, and wouldn't it, isn't it more godly, in fact, to suffer with those who suffer and mourn with those who mourn than to be at peace while there are those broken and mourning around us, ignoring their brokenness and their mourning? I mean, does not Scripture expressly command us to come alongside those who are weeping and weep with them? Would it not be better if we were like Rachel, who was weeping for her children and refused to be comforted? Well, I think the answers to these questions, or as close as we're going to get to answers to these questions, are in the strangeness of this passage we're going to read in just a moment, in John 16, which are the last of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he enters into his passion. So in the way John's gospel tells the story, Jesus meets with the disciples for this supper, he washes their feet, and then he gives them one last teaching that begins as we all know, with the promise. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be too. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That's how it begins. And what we're going to read in just a moment are his last words in those last words in which he reiterates that he wants them to have peace. But the key to understanding this passage, I think, is to notice Jesus' quirky sense of humor. Now, you might not have known that one of the key attributes of God is God's quirkiness. You would think we would start with God's omniscience and his omnipresence and his omnipotence, but no, no, no. We want to start with God's quirkiness because God is weird in this way. He's funny, ha-ha, and he's funny, huh, what are you doing? He's funny, peculiar as well. In fact, Robert Jensen says that God is the laughter at the ground of all things. Now think about that. We're not used to talking about God as funny. If you're going to tweet about this sermon, by the way, it's hashtag quirky Jesus. We're not used to thinking of Jesus that way. Right? We're just not. But think about it for a moment. Think about a God who calls Israel. Remember what he tells Israel? I chose you because you were the smallest and the most impotent of all the nations. That's a jokester. Right? Think, think about what he's doing. I'm going to call you. To do this. And, and we get that reiterated in the church. I mean, what does Paul tell them? Not many of you are wise. <laughs> None of you. Not many of you are famous. Not many of you are wealthy. Not many of you are strong. I mean, the, God has the sense of humor. Think about prayer. That God invites us to pray. That's funny, right? That he wants us to be included in the way he orders the world. He knows all things. He has all power. And yet God is just quirky enough to say, I don't want to do what we need doing, what needs doing in this world without you praying. 
That's odd. Paul calls preaching out and out foolishness. It's strange. It's quirky that we gather together to worship and you have me talking to you about these kinds of things. This is odd, right? Especially right now. This is odd, right? This is funny. Think about baptism, that the way we're going to mark the, the movement from life to death, from death to life, from darkness to light is by putting you under the water. And that's, that's odd. When we come to this table at the end of this sermon, God is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. That's funny, right? That's funny. Why don't we, but we don't think about God that way. And I think some of that is because we don't read the gospel stories closely. Do you realize how odd Jesus was? How many quirky things he did? Think about turning water to wine. You remember they used the pots that had been filled with the water they used to wash their hands. That, those are the pots they use, he uses, to turn the water to wine. That's funny. Think about the time he healed the blind man by spitting in the dirt and making a poultice of mud and putting it on the man's eyes and then telling him to go wash in the pool. There's no reason for that. It's just a joke. Like, there's no reason for that. <laughs> Jesus laughs all the way thinking, that man did that. Like, he took that seriously. <laughs> Jesus is laughing through it all. <laughs> Jensen also says that the devil is the devil because he won't let the joke be on him. He puts it this way. The devil is all wit and no humor. God is infinitely witty and infinitely humorous. The devil is all wit, no humor. The devil refuses to be laughed at. He laughs at you, but he won't let the joke be on him. Jensen says, the resurrection is the great joke. It's God letting death happen to him. And think about how God is laughing in that moment. It's going to be the moment in which he tramples down death by death. And the reason we associate laughter with Easter is because the punchline is so funny. It's so surprising, so unexpected, the most unexpected thing. Easter is the punchline. And Jensen says, if the devil knew that the joke was on him and would laugh at himself, it would be his salvation. But the inability to let the joke be on us is the sign that our hearts have been darkened, that we've been turned away from God. So with all that said, I want to come to this passage, Jesus' last, last words to his disciples in John 16. And I want us to read it, listening for that kind of humor. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do this. How many of you have seen Monty Python before? <laughs> I want you to imagine this scene as a Monty Python skit. Jesus and his disciples. You've got to imagine it that way. Or nothing that I'm going to say is going to make any sense. May not anyway, but just, just imagine it that way. And if I had enough skill, I would try to perform it. But I don't have that kind of skill. So here we go. Monty Python skit, Jesus and disciples. Here's the scene. A little while, Jesus is saying, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. That's funny. Then some of his disciples say to one another, what does he mean by saying to us, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I am going to the Father? They said, what does he mean by this, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Now, of course, this is a moment in which we are supposed to laugh, because the truth of the matter is, nobody ever understands Jesus when he's talking. <laughs> Read the Gospels. Every time he teaches, the response is either irate disagreement, 
or just sheer puzzlement. What is this man saying? And so here you have his closest disciples huddled in this room with him on his last night with them. As he's entering his passion, he's giving his last words to them. And they're looking at each other like, what's he talking about? What does he mean? What's going on here? Jesus knows, of course, that they want to ask him. So he says to them, and by the way, they want to ask him, but they don't. You know why? Because they know that his answer will just confuse them further. (laughs) So he says, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me again? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will be turned into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. And then Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures. But I will tell you plainly of the Father. And you can hear the disciples breathe and start to nod with excitement. All right, now he's going to say something plain. We've been with him for three years. We've been really waiting for this moment. (laughs) He's going to say it to us. And so here are Jesus' plain words. On that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That's odd. What do you mean? Why are you going to stop praying for us? It just deepens the oddity when you realize that as soon as Jesus is through with this teaching, what we have in John 17 is Jesus praying for them. But here he's telling them plainly, the day is coming, it's already here, in which I will not pray for you. What kind of promise is that? You said you were going to speak to us plainly. I don't know what you mean, still. For the Father himself loves you, Jesus says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now notice how he says, you have loved me and you have believed. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. Now, let me me just interrupt the reading for a moment. Now, think about what's happened. In these last, last words, he begins by telling them, I'm going to go away for a little while. I'm going to be gone for a little while. Then in a little while, I'm going to come back. Right? Then he gives them a figure. It's like a woman who is in pain in the moment of birth. Then the child comes, and all the pain is forgotten and is sheer joy. Then he says... I'm going to soon stop using figures of speech, and I'm just going to tell you plainly. And then what he tells them plainly is, one, I'm going to stop praying for you. And two, I'm going to, in a little while, leave. And I'm going to be gone a little while, and in a little while, I'm going to come back. It's what you already said to us. This is a disappointment. You said you were going to be plain. Then you say some strange promise we can't make sense of. And then you repeated yourself. But notice how the disciples respond. Yes, now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. And of course, we know to laugh at them. Now we know, they say, that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. 
Now notice Jesus had already told them, you believe I came from God. Now they're admitting we didn't really believe, but now we do. Like before, when you were talking in those figures of speech, we didn't really believe. Now we get it. And notice Jesus' response. Do you? (laughs) Think about this. Do you? The hour is coming, he says. He keeps repeating that phrase. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. You will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Now, I, only, I think we're only able to make sense of that last promise. Take courage. In me you have peace. I have conquered the world. If we attend to the humor of what he's doing to them and how he's laughing at their lack of understanding, laughing, as I will say in a moment, for them. Well, what does this mean for us? And how does it relate to this question about what is peace? How do we get it? Should we want it? I think this holy sense of humor, this quirkiness that Jesus has, that God is and has, is tied to humility. And humility is tied to how open we are to reality. Let me, let me picture it for you like this in three stages. There is complete closeness to reality. What the scripture calls hard-heartedness, that's a reflection of pride. The reason God hates pride is that it shuts you off from life. It causes you to be desensitized to the reality that's happening around you. And that can be, and often is, mistaken for peace. There are many of us who think we have peace, but really we just have been desensitized to the reality around us. This hit me the other day at lunch. We're having a kind of pre-meal chat, and someone mentions that he had seen on the news that there is Ebola-tainted blood being sold on the black market in Africa. And then the comment came, man, I pray it doesn't come here. I think for a moment about that. In one way, it seems natural. Who wouldn't say that? But think about it for a moment. That there are brothers and sisters of ours, mothers and sons and daughters and fathers, who are going to die from that. And our response is to say, as long as it's not here. That's, that's pride. That's hard-heartedness. That's being shut off from reality. You remember the story of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in the Old Testament? He is told he's going to die, and he turns his face to the wall, and he prays for God to give him longer life. And then while he lives that longer life, he sins and brings judgment down on his house, and the prophet returns and says to him, you've been unfaithful, and because of your sin, your sons and your daughters will be carried into captivity, and your city will be destroyed. You remember what Hezekiah says? Well, at least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Think about that. Think about how hard-hearted you have to be to have no regard for the brokenness in the world outside of you. John says it this way. If you say you love God and you see someone in need and you are not moved to care for their needs, you do not have the love of God in you. Because to have the love of God in you is to be open to reality. And if you see a need, you cannot not see to the need. So if we are desensitized to what's happening in our world, to the horrors of terrorism, to the horrors of racism, to the horrors of endemic and pandemic diseases, it's because we don't have the love of God in us. Because the love of God in us opens us up to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. 
and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And then there's, a, there's another stage that moves into reality, but not to the heart of reality. And in this, at this depth, there is a kind of pride that looks like anger for the victims. And it is expressed against God, against all the powers in the world, whether the church or the government, that aren't caring for those who are broken. And, and here you get those people who are embittered and sour in their anger. And their humor reflects it. Martin Luther said about the devil, he is a sour spirit. And there's a kind of humor that is used against God and against others as a way of not having to deal with the brokenness that's in the world. And there are some people who aren't so hard-hearted that they don't experience brokenness, but then they settle into the brokenness unfaithfully and become dark and hard and resistant to the grace of God in the world. And they use humor to hold everyone at arm's length. And then if we go even deeper into reality, we come to the ground of reality, to the laughter that God is. And that's where true humility lies. When you are sensitized not only to the lesser reality that we see in the world around us, but to the greater reality that is behind the world around us. So we see the suffering, and we see the sin, and we see the brokenness, but we remember there is one greater than all of that, and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And humility is being aware of the whole of reality, not just the face of reality, but the depths where God is and God is at work. And so when we come to that depth, we come in touch with the laughter that God is. I have a good friend, Brian, who attended our church in Oklahoma City, and he told me this story about being out on the road one day with their newborn daughter, he, his wife, and his newborn daughter, and they see a tornado suddenly in front of them. And he realizes they do not have time. There is no, he has no sense that they're going to be able to escape it. And instantly, he and his wife, Lacey, turned to each other. And he said, we both realized in that moment, it is very possible we are going to die. He's like, it's the first time in my life I ever thought about death, and I realized I might die. And he said, and yet in that moment, we were not afraid. He said, I was crying, but somehow I was at peace. And he said, with tears running down our face, faces, we laughed. Because we knew we were facing death, and yet we were together. And it was not the horror we had expected it to be. What happened in that moment is that they brushed up against the deeper magic at the heart of the world. They brushed up against the God who knows that death is not the last word. I saw this in my own life from my wife, who is the one God uses most of the time to teach me what he's like in all kinds of ways. More than a decade ago, I was teaching at a Bible school. I know this will be hard for you to believe, but I... I had created a bit of controversy and I had to answer for it. So I go into a meeting that lasts six and a half hours. When I come out the other side of the meeting, I've been forced to resign. Now, I'm, a, I'm a kid still. I'm in my early 20s, I guess, at that point, mid-20s. And my wife is pregnant with our first child. She's working there at the school. And so what we decide to do is... Of course, we lose insurance, but she continues to work at the school, and she will continue working there until I can find a job. So I took odd jobs, worked several jobs. Finally, I took a job at a bank as a teller. 
Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, never take a job as a teller at a bank. (laughs) Those were dark, dark days. There's something inhuman that happens when people are rushed and handling money at the same time. Ask me to tell you the story sometime about the, the woman who was the pastor of prayer at the church we were renting space from who got upset because I couldn't complete a application for her and flipped me off, not knowing that I was the pastor of the church that was renting space from them. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> telling you, people, don't, they, they turn into something inhuman in the bank. One morning, I show up at the bank. My wife has quit her job. We've just had the baby just a few days old maybe a week or two, I show up at work, my till is $1,000 short. I didn't steal it, for those of you who are wondering, right? But I'm serious, five or 10 minutes from the time they found out that my till was $1,000 short, the district manager was there, took my key, and I was in the parking lot. And I'm looking at my cell phone. Am I gonna call Julie or not? So I finally do, because eventually, you know, I have to face her one way or another. I did consider for a while just leaving, like just running away, but I'm not, I'm not made for that kind of life. So I decided I might as well call her. And so I called Julie and she says, Hey babe. And I said, honey, I think I just got fired again. And lie not, this was my wife's response. I remember she's holding a a baby that's just a week old, right? She's in her twenties too. And this is her response. She laughs. And she says, oh, baby, I'm in line right now for food stamps. And the line for unemployment is just right there. (laughs) Now, Now, think about what happened. See, she wasn't laughing at me. She was, and this is the first time I'd experienced this in my life. She was laughing for me. Because somehow she knew in her bones that God was greater than what we were experiencing. And her trust in him was so automatic and her love for me was so automatic that even in the midst of that turmoil, her knee-jerk response was not anger. It wasn't to throw platitudes. It wasn't to cry out for God's help. It was just to laugh in the face of the calamity. She laughed for me. And the shame and the fear just melted off of me. Because I realized this won't define us either. This is not going to tell us who God is and who we are and what the world is like. This is part of a joke and the punchline is still to come. And, and ever since then, I've, I've been familiarized because of my wife's grace with the God who laughs, but never at us, always for us. So I'm going to end with this. I suspect that there are some of you, if you're paying attention, who are saying, that's well and good, but I'm not laughing. I'm in the midst of my own troubledness without and within, and I'm not laughing. Why am I not laughing? Because I think our response in these moments is always to feel like we're not coming through for ourselves. We're not measuring up. We think about that passage in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all of my life, I've heard that sermon preached something like this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't you know that? Get some joy in your life. If you're sinning, if you're not overcoming temptation, it's because you don't have enough joy. Now, find the joy. 
Get the joy and you'll have the strength. And then one day I was reading that passage and it was as if the Lord said to me, laughing, son, do you really think I want you to work yourself into strength by finding joy? He said, that joy is not your joy in me. It's my joy in you. Your strength is that I take joy in you no matter what's going on. Here's, here's the joke. If you don't have peace this morning, it doesn't matter because there's one who has peace for you. Jesus in that moment, those last, last words, he's telling them in the same breath, you're about to abandon me. You think you've had a revelation, but you have no idea. You're about to abandon me. Leave me alone. All of you are faceless, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. I'm giving you my peace while I know you're abandoning me. Hear me this morning. Some of you feel like you're at that point of abandoning. And the Lord's response is to laugh, not at you, but for you. He has peace for you. Whether you feel it or not, he has peace for you. And I pray that you will have ears to hear the God who is laughing over you because he knows the end he has for you. Amen. Pastor Ed. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.